Are you enjoying this uh, all or nothing preaching series? It's just so good, isn't it? Just to pick up one book or letter of the Bible and just stick with it and chew on it and dig around in it to see what we can get out of it. And it's amazing when you just go verse by verse through any part of the Bible. There is just so much that we can draw from this incredible living book. And I've really enjoyed this journey through Colossians and what each of the members of our speaker team has brought out of each chapter. So this is our finale. This is our last bit of Colossians before we move on to a few other sort of one-off standalone sessions and then we hit Christmas. So we're going to finish the series together today. So turn to Colossians and chapter 3 and we're going to go from verse 18. And this last section is split into two parts. The first part is some quite strong apostolic teaching. And then the second part is really a picture of the apostolic team that Paul heads up. So we get a real glimpse into what the church is like in the first century. So let's jump straight in to some strong apostolic teaching for people such as you and me. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. Let every wife be supportive and tenderly devoted to her husband. For this is a beautiful illustration of our devotion to Christ. Has anyone got a different translation? <laughs> you, okay, what, what's yours? Go on. Submit. Wives submit. Read the whole verse, verse 18. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There's a few intakes of breath there. Is this what we're supposed to be doing? Does, does, it sounds a little bit controversial, doesn't it? dangerous business I'm on tender ground why does it sound controversial to some people that wives should submit to their husbands well I, I, I think the reason why is because there is so much brokenness between the sexes to be honest you know we hear across the media all the time how uh, how much brokenness and abuse and uh, corruption there is in society how in so many different countries women are so badly oppressed. In the West, often there is uh, a problem in the workplace where still males hold the top positions right across the West. We hear about the uh, misuse of various employees in different places and sexual harassment. We hear there's the hashtag MeToo thing going mental across America, and you just see that there is this tension between male and female. And where sin is in the world, we struggle to see how beautiful this relationship can look. And there is this kind of safeguarding mentality that we all have a little bit of, I think, where we worry that actually if we take this as just one blanket message that all wives should submit to all husbands because it says so in the word, no matter what the husband is like, we see that there could be a problem here, right? Potentially. So what do we say to the family? How do we apply this verse to the family where the wife who is wise, responsible, trying to raise her kids well, and trying to continue in a marriage with a husband who has a gambling addiction, and squanders all the family money on that addiction, and frequently comes home drunk and intimidating 
to the family and to the children? Do we say that this verse is saying that that wife needs to submit to that husband in all of his choices? God, please no. We're not saying that, are we? But this verse has been used to uh, justify all manner of wickedness in that way and to uphold oppression. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Sadly, we, if you look across human history, there is just so much abuse and oppression of women. It's hard not to read these verse, this verse through that lens. But do you know what? The Greek word here for submitted or supportive is hupotasso. It can be translated submitted, attached or supported, supportive or devoted to. So there's no coercion here. It describes a voluntary giving of one support and adoration to another. Okay? Paul is saying, wives, so far as you can, support your husbands rather than running them down. Be tenderly devoted to them in a way that reflects our tender devotion to Christ. That is a beautiful picture. Let me speak to the husbands in the room. Does that sound good to you? That your wives would be supportive and tenderly devoted to you in a way that beautifully illustrates their devotion to Christ? Does that sound good? That's good. It does, doesn't it? Wives, hear your husbands. This is a happy verse for us. We want to high-five Jesus just for putting this one in there. <laughs> this is what you're aiming for. Be supportive and tenderly devoted to your husbands in a way that beautifully illustrates your love, it illustrates your love for Jesus Christ. Let's read on. Listen up, you husbands. Let every husband be filled with cherishing love for his wife and never be insensitive towards her. Can I get an amen from the wives? How does that sound to you? Sound good? That your husbands are commanded by the apostle to be continually filled with cherishing love for you and never insensitive towards you. Tell you what, next time your husband's a bit insensitive, you can turn to him and say, well, that wasn't very Colossians 3.19. Well, actually, no, I'm not sure that's what these verses are given for either. We're not supposed to pick up Bible verses and hit each other with them in arguments, are we? Don't do that. <laughs> On a serious note, this is actually really important. I grew up in a family where taking women for granted was the norm, and casual, insensitive put-downs and jokes towards women was an everyday thing. It was devastating. It really was. And it happened especially at family gatherings. One of my aunties was called Frumpy as her nickname throughout my childhood. And I didn't know any different. That was just what she was called by her husband. It's impossible to measure the harm done over years of this kind of careless banter. Needless to say, the women in my family had to battle for confidence and self-esteem. Paul says, husbands... Eradicate insensitive banter from your life. Seek to understand your wives and build them up in your love. Seek to grow as old as you can together without a single harmful word. Never doubting for a second, with your wives never having to doubt for a second that you are deeply in love with them. That's the goal. That's what we're shooting for as husbands. 
And it's not just idealism either. It really is possible. There are many couples who have sought to put these words at the heart of their marriages and they've maintained beautiful relationships for decades. And I'm privileged to know many of you here who've got beautiful marriages like that. So just by, as a bit of fun, husbands in the room, how many of you would say that your wives are supportive and tenderly devoted to you? Hands? Look at that. Yes. Morgan just put John's hand up. Love that. Wives, how many of you would say that your husbands are full of cherishing love towards you and never, ever insensitive? Let's just leave that there. <laughs> Well, he gives it his best shot. Let's, let's, should have said that. Love it. Okay, let's read on. Are you liking it so far? It's pretty down to earth, isn't it? Verse 20. Let children respect and pay attention to their parents in everything, for this pleases our Lord Jesus. Just want to remind you that Amiga are in with us. Uh, some of our Amiga guys. Are they still in? They've, oh, they've gone upstairs. I thought they were supposed to be in today. But there's one or two of our younger people in today. If you are under the age of 20, uh, listen to this. You can be a child today. Respect and pay attention to your parents and everything, for this pleases our Lord Jesus. You might not always agree with your parents, but you can respect them and you can pay attention to them. And God loves this quality in a young person. And so as not to leave you guys out, Let's read on. Verse 21. And fathers, don't have unrealistic expectations for your children, or else they may become discouraged. Doesn't say anything about mothers there, but you can learn something too from this one, I think. The apostle is crystal clear. Don't have unrealistic expectations of your kids. This verse can actually be translated as, don't exasperate your children. Have you ever exasperated your children? I think I have once or twice. So mums and dads, accept your kids. Encourage your kids. Don't exasperate them or wind them up or make cutting comments. I think I want to say this morning that it's tough out there for young people. And they need every little bit of encouragement and courage and affirmation and security that we can possibly give them. So parents, repeat after me. Okay, you ready? I promise... With the help of God, that I will try not to exasperate my kids, or put unrealistic expectations upon them, but to affirm them and encourage them, this I will do as a command from the Lord. Amen. That was for you younger dudes out there. You can thank me later. Should we move on to slaves? Okay. Now, verses 22, uh, 322 to 4, verse 1, have been used to justify abuse in the past as well. I can't believe how, how, the way that different parts of history have taken verses like this and, been, and used them to justify wickedness across the earth. It's been used to uh, justify slave trading uh, and to keep the misuse of people going. It's just sick and sad and so far from what the apostle intended. When Paul was writing 
and he mentions slaves. He was writing to the people at the lower end of the society that he was part of. This was just a feature in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. And some slaves were very ill-treated. They were very much seen as pieces of property. Um, Other slaves were quite prosperous and held quite high positions in society. But employment-wise, in the first century, people were more owned than employed. They were very much under uh, the authority of masters at that time. And so Paul wanted to address this strata of society. And actually, he's doing something incredibly radical. By writing to them personally, he's actually honouring them as equals in the kingdom of God. He's coming against some of the social norms by saying, actually, we all have our part in this kingdom of God, that everybody is welcome, and we can all take an equal part in the words of the apostle. Does that make sense? He's actually trying to subvert the culture of the time and elevate these people as people that that are worthy of of living under the word of God and, and as equal brothers and sisters in Christ. So my, my translation helpfully translates uh, slaves and masters to employees and employers. So as we listen to these verses, let's just think about our employment life, our work life, and apply these verses to our work. Verse 22. Let every employee listen well and follow the instructions of their employer, not just when their employers are watching and not in pretense, but be faithful in all things. For we are to live our lives with pure hearts and in the constant awe and wonder of our Lord God. Put your heart and soul into every activity you do, as though you are doing it for the Lord himself and not merely for others. What a great work ethic. Don't do the bare minimum only when your boss is, and only when your boss is watching. Be the kind of people that have a consistency in our work because we work not just because of getting ahead in life, not just because we might get a promotion, not just because uh, we might be seen as something special within our team, but because we are doing it because God has called us to doing it, to do what we do. And we want to do it with all of our hearts because we're passionate for him first and foremost. What a great way to work. What a great way to spend your days, to spend your life, not just making... Uh, uh, a little bit of money to make ends meet and to meet the bills at the end of the month but to work from a passionate and full heart can you do that that is what this is calling for have you ever been part of a team that is really lazy it's really hard it's it's a really nasty place to work i remember when i uh, set out to be a carpenter when i was 21 just got married here in church Mary and I had just set up our lives together, and um, I managed to land an apprenticeship as a carpenter. I, I, was, I was raring to go. I was so excited. I had these brand new shiny tools that I'd just put, taken out of the packets. I had a, a, a perfect saw and a hammer that had never seen a nail. and uh, It was this, this perfectly clean kit bag of tools that had never seen any work. And when I managed to get to the building site, my boss put me on three months' worth of cobbing. Do you know what cobbing is? It's basically building a wall out of medium density clay content soil, straw, and cow shit. <laughs> There's no wood involved in this. Right, so there are different ways to do this. There are easy ways and there are hard ways to do this. 
and we did it the hard way, which involves basically a big tarpaulin, and you lump on all the different materials, and then you roll it in different directions, and then you stamp on it with your wellies, and mush it in, roll it again, stamp on it with your wellies, and you roll it again, until it's really well mixed in, and it's just a heavy, dense lump in the middle of the tarpaulin. And then you get a fork, and you just fork it into buckets, drag it up uh, ladders onto the scaffolding, onto the top, someone else picks it up, shoves it on the wall, and whacks it down with a spade. That's cobbing, okay? It's not the most glamorous job in the world. It was, it was uh, like an initiation into my workplace, I think. And I can kind of forgive him because it was such a laborious, heavy, hard job to do this. But we, my team that I was inserted into as a young carpenter, where there's three other guys, and our job was to build up the side of this beautiful 17th century cider barn about six foot all the way around before we could start then building the roofs with these big oak A-frames and stuff. I knew the A-frame bit was coming, so I was really excited as a, uh, a young guy that wanted to get ahead in carpentry and learn all the skills and how to do it. But we had to make up a good few foot before we could get to the carpentry bit. And whenever my boss left the building site, they just downed tools. They just basically sat on the scaffolding and stared into space. They couldn't even go down and, and get comfortable and open a newspaper because they knew that he might walk around the corner at any point because we were mainly working around the back of the building and we didn't ever see him coming. Um, so we had to look busy, which meant sort of standing on the scaffolding, doing nothing. I, I was really, really frustrated because I just wanted to get on with it. I thought, well, we could probably knock this out in a couple of weeks. We could get this wall built up and then I can get my tools out and start learning some stuff because I was really keen. I was like raring to go and wet behind the ears. Um, but these guys just didn't want to do anything. And I was in this horrible position. Do I tell my boss that they do nothing as soon as he walks around the corner? Or, I mean, he kind of knew anyway because we never made any progress. Um, but that way I'd fall out with my team. And I'd be this really irritating young person that had just come on site and ruined their good gig of standing around doing nothing all day. Or what do I do? I can't actually lift this stuff on my own. I can't make cob on my own very easy. I did. I did my best to do some, but then you just feel like an idiot. So I ended up just sitting there staring into space doing nothing for week upon week. Upon week. It took months longer than it should have done. And it was so frustrating. I just wanted to get ahead. That was my motivation at the time. I just wanted to get on my tools torn between being liked and doing the job I was excited to do. But you know what the Apostle is saying here? Our best motivation is not just to, to get on in life and to, to see if we can be promoted and to do, do well. Our best motivation is to do what we do for Jesus. To work with integrity. To work out of worship. To work because he deserves our best. So it doesn't matter if we're cleaning toilets or changing nappies or selling cars or doing heart surgery. It doesn't matter. Whatever we do, we can do it for Jesus. We can do it as an act of worship. And it counts in heaven. Paul is saying, whatever it is you do, you can make the Father smile through the way that you go about doing your everyday life. Do it with excellence. Do it with a full heart. Do it overlooking the faults of your team as best you possibly can. There is so much more joy and meaning in our work when we do it for the Lord. Even bad days can become days of friendship with God because we share the triumphs as well as the failures with the one that we're really working for. 
it brings so much more richness. This is the true essence of worship, not just singing songs or morning devotions or reading our Bibles, as good as those are, but holy habits of sharing our everyday life with him. If you can do that, you've become a true worshipper of the living God. Stanley Hauerwas said this, Christianity is not just a set of beliefs or doctrines one believes in order to be a Christian, but rather Christianity is to have one's body shaped and one's habits determined in such a way that worship of God is unavoidable. I love that. Do you like that idea that worship is unavoidable because your habit is to turn every area of life into worship? That's my goal. Chapter 3, verse 17 says, Let every activity of your lives and every word that comes from your lips be drenched with the beauty of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One. And bring your constant praise to God, the Father, because of what Christ has done for you. What, what a verse to aim for. Let every activity of your lives become worship. And then Paul gives another great motivation to worship with our whole lives. He says the world is watching. Let's read chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in the wisdom of God as you live before the unbelievers and make it your duty to make him known. Let every word you speak be drenched with grace and tempered with truth and clarity, for then you will be prepared to give a respectful answer to anyone who asks about your faith. Do you know that you are the only way that some of the people in your sphere of influence are ever going to get a glimpse of God? Just by how you live, just by the spirit that you walk in, just by your words that you share. It used to be that in this country you couldn't go too many paces without being reminded of something to do with God. And that there was a general kind of rhythm and a habit of life in this country where you were kind of confronted by who God is all the time through Sunday worship and songs and traditions. None of that is here anymore. Actually, the only way that many people that you know are ever going to encounter God in any way is through you. That puts an enormous responsibility on all of us, doesn't it? But it's also an incredible opportunity. Eugene Peterson said this, Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. God, help us to do that in a consistent and authentic way. We need to do that. Hear the call to do that this morning. Now, I want to finish this powerful letter by having a look at this beautiful apostolic team. Let's read from chapter 4 and verse 7. And I've got to remember all these very old-fashioned names. This is where a clever pastor would have got a reader to do it for him. Okay. Tychicus will tell you about what is happening with me. I have sent him to you so that he could find out how you're doing and your journey of faith. And bring comfort and, and encouragement to your hearts. For he is a beloved brother in Christ, a faithful servant of the gospel, and my ministry partner in our master Yahweh's work. I've also sent Onesimus, who is from your city, and is also a beloved and faithful brother, 
who will inform you of all that we're enduring. Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner here with me, sends you his love. And Joshua, who is also called Justice, along with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, also, they also send their loving greetings. You have already been informed that if Mark comes to you, receive him warmly. These three men are the only ones of the circumcision who have aided me here in the work of the kingdom of God, and they've been a great blessing to me. Epaphras, who is also from Colossae, sends his loving greetings. I can tell you that he is a true servant of Christ, who always labours and intercedes for you. His prayers are filled with requests to God that you would grow and mature, standing complete and perfect in the beauty of God's plan for your lives. Epaphras has such great zeal and passion for you and for those who are from Laodicea and Heropolis. And Luke, the beloved physician, sends his warm greetings to you, and Demas also. Give my greetings to all the believers in Laodicea, and I pray for Nymphas and the church that gathers in her home. Once you've read this letter publicly to the church, please send it on to the church of the Laodiceans, and make sure you read the letter that I wrote to them. Be sure that you give Archippus this message. Be faithful to complete the ministry you received from our Lord Jesus. Now finally, I, Paul, write this with my own handwriting, and I send my loving greetings to you. Remember me in my imprisonment, and may the blessing, blessings of God's grace overwhelm you. Loving Christ, Paul. Can you hear the love in those verses? The friendship, the joy, the passion, the flexibility, the freedom of movement that they've got between them. I love it. I counted 17 words of affection in these 11 verses. He calls people faithful and beloved, a great blessing to me. He is sending loving greetings. He describes Epaphras as having great zeal and passion for you. I want to preach this morning that this is the first defining feature of a spirit-filled apostolic church. It runs on deep friendship as well as faith. Does that sound good to you? It's true. Every good church in the world that you'll find, every church that is uh, doing the work of God and is really having an impact in its community and growing and expanding and serving the poor, etc., it runs on faith and it runs on good friendship. It runs on good agreements and love between its people. What else is clear about this team? Number two, it's fueled through passionate intercession for one another. What does that mean, that word intercession? Well, the word intercession means really just to sort of stand in the gap. So in between a person or a situation and God. Just to stand in that place in between them and God and seek to bring God's blessing into that situation. That's what it means. Almost like an electric conduit to be able to grab hold of God and say, Lord, let your power flow into this thing or over these people, whatever it is. Lord, use me, use these prayers as a, a channel through which your grace can flow and bless this person or these people or this situation. That's what it means, to stand in the gap and to lay hold of both things. Why did they make such a big deal of prayer and intercession for one another? Because they saw miraculous results. They saw incredible transformation as they got on their faces before God and asked for his blessing over situations. So they laboured in prayer. 
be inspired this morning. Tottenham United Free Church, keep praying for one another. None of your prayers are wasted. They are so powerful. Okay, defining feature number three. The apostolic team think in terms of fields or regions rather than churches or denominations. Amen. Throughout these verses, we've got people who care deeply about various places and peoples and parts of society. So we've got Paul, he cares about the whole Gentile world. He is an apostle to the Gentiles. So he's like a whole world kind of guy. There are not many Pauls out there. And then you've got this sort of Gentile world team. You've got Luke, we've got John Mark that are mentioned in here. But we also know that Barnabas and Silas and others are called to serve everywhere and to pray for everywhere and to intercede for the whole world. We've then got people like Epaphras, called to be a blessing of God to an entire area. He's mentioned that he's passionate about Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis. So that's a whole kind of region of the Roman world. Are you an Epaphras? Do you find yourself passionate and praying for the South Hams? Or for Devon? Or for the UK, maybe? And then we've got people like Archippus. Sounds like Archippus. Uh, his name isn't Chippus, and he's, it's Archippus. <laughs> Probably called to be a blessing to Laodicea and the surrounding villages. So maybe you're a bit of an Archippus. Maybe you're called to Totnes and the surrounding villages, and you just want to be a blessing wherever in that sphere. And then there are women like Nymphas, called to carry the kingdom of God into a neighbourhood. It says she was a... a, a it was a little church that met in her home. She was a mission community leader. She wanted to bless her neighbourhood and pray for her neighbourhood and find ways to communicate Christ with her neighbourhood in the best way she possibly can. And we can all do that. We can all be nymphases. But what about Onesimus? He was, just, he was a slave that had run away and landed with Paul. And he was being sent back to Colossae. But he just wanted to be wherever God was doing stuff and just help just to help the cause of the kingdom wherever he went. Maybe some of us are Onesimuses, and I really hope so. I know actually many of you are. And we, the kingdom needs as many Onesimuses as possible just to help and make stuff happen. Wherever we are placed in the world, there are all kinds of callings and places and spheres of influence. But the message is clear. God has called his people to be a powerful blessing in the sphere that he has called each of us. It's our job to explore the arena that God has entrusted to us and to pray for heaven to touch it all. So if you want to know what area God has called you to serve, how, where your sphere is, whether you're a, a Paul or whether you're uh, uh, an Epaphras or whether you're a, uh, any of these people, any of these levels or, or areas that you're called to, one indicator, indicator is to notice where your thoughts go when you try to imagine God outpouring his blessing and making a difference. So when you think for a minute, if you just imagine praying a simple prayer, Lord, would, in, in the areas that I care about, Lord, would you pour out your blessing? What is the first thing that comes to mind? What do you want to see most see transformed? Is it your family? Is it your village? Your town? Devon? Another country, maybe. Maybe there's a country that God's placed on your heart and that's, that is just the place that you want to see transformed. Maybe the first place that comes to mind is your office and the people you work amongst. Maybe it's your hospital or your school. Whatever it is that comes to mind, 
that's likely to be the area that God has called you to at the moment. This can change as we go through our lives. But at the moment, that is probably the area that God has called you to be a blessing and to release the kingdom with great power through prayer and through witness. Whatever your area of service, Colossians charges you to pray for it with all your heart. Try and be systematic with your prayer for it. Learn from this apostolic team. And to serve it, uh, uh, to serve it for the Lord as part of the Lord's global apostolic team. The Lord has given each of us an area to work with, or a field to cultivate. But we're part of a much bigger, a global idea that God has for reaching every part of society. We're not alone. Go for miracles of change. And don't feel like you're flying solo. Don't feel like you're, you're serving alone, because you're not. Because we have one another. In the same way that this team had one another, and they're writing to one another, and talking to one another, and encouraging one another, and they're on their faces before God for one another, that we may all be fruitful in the spheres that God has given us, None of you here in this room are alone. God has placed you with friends and intercessors who will encourage you and share the journey with you. What a vision for life and ministry. God's church is so beautiful when it is functioning properly. Let's pray. God, straight out of this passage, we want to pray that you would bless our marriages, that we would have those kind of marriages that can be beautiful, not just today, but for decades. Lord, we want to ask that you would bless our parenting and our, our relationship with our kids. It's a high calling to be parents of kids, Lord God, and we often feel like we don't get it right and that we are making it up as we go along. But Lord, would you be our wisdom and our self-control when it comes to raising our kids? And also, would you bless our relationship with our parents? Help us to be those who respect and pay attention to our parents, however old we are. Lord, would you pour out your blessing on our work life, on our sense of calling, on our ability to pray with passion in the spheres that you've called us to serve. Would you help us to build one another up as friends and to do all that we do as worship to you. Come Holy Spirit and lead us on. Amen.